Welcome to How to Sell Drugs, presented by Lucy, a podcast about drug culture, policy, and business with an emphasis on harm reduction. We believe that prohibition and abstinence-only policies result in poor results for society. We'll be discussing how drugs are sold, and perhaps more importantly, how they should be sold. This is not intended to advocate drug use and meant for educational purposes only. Our primary sponsor for this podcast, as always, is us. If you or someone you know uses nicotine, we encourage you to visit lucy.co to try our range of delicious and satisfying products that we hope you'll find to be much better than cigarettes, vapes, smokeless tobacco, and other traditional tobacco products. Today, I'm joined by my co-founder, John. Hi, John. Hi, David. And we're joined by Joe and Julie. Hi, David. That is just one person, not Joe and Julie, who <laughs> he <laughs> confirmed to us or, or confided in us that uh, he's often on conference calls mistaken as two people. Uh, unfortunately, we just got one person today, only one guest, <laughs> but he's great. And uh, rather than butcher uh, the intro uh, and, and describe his life's work, we're going to let him do it and, and put him on the spot right now. Yeah, sure. So I'm a ver- uh, for, uh I, I'm a vice president at First Beverage Ventures. We're an investor in early stage beverage companies across both alcohol and non-alcoholic uh, beverages. I started at First Beverage about four or five years ago, and I actually started on the investment banking side of our business, which we actually no longer do. And and that, that was actually, I consider that to be quite formative to to my experience in in the industry. I think. You know, the, the banking side, we were doing sell-side capital raising, M&A transactions, and we were doing it for all beverages, but we were primarily focused on the craft beer industry. And so I really had a, a front row seat to the evolution of the craft beer industry in its prime and the rapid rise of, of craft beer and popularity and culminating in Ballast Point being acquired by Constellation, Lagunitas being acquired by Heineken. And then, you know, shortly thereafter, starting to taper and really the category growing, but same same brand growth, you know, starting to flatten out as more and more and more local brands started to come into the market. And so to watch that firsthand was was incredible and, and a really unique experience. We did a lot of deals o- over that time period. But the problem or the rub with investment banking to me is you get so invested in in getting to know these entrepreneurs and getting to hear their story and you can articulate the growth story and what strengths, weaknesses, et cetera. And you do the deal and one day, nine months later, boom, that's it. You never, you never talk to that entrepreneur again. And I was always so bummed about that because, you know, I mean, in my mind, let's face it, the, I think the beverage industry has the best entrepreneurs out there. It's really good people who are starting these companies. And so I was kind of bummed, you know, hey, I, yeah. I, I kind of, I wish I got to, you know, I want to hang out with you again, yeah. you know? <laughs> and so that's what drew me to the investing side of the business, which is where I am today. We're investing in early stage, fast growing beverage companies. Great. And so to clarify, you guys invest in both alcoholic and non-alcoholic beverages. That includes wine, beer, hard liquor as well. Yeah. Yeah. We look at everything. We focus mostly on spirits, to be honest. We have two spirits investments in the portfolio today, but we look across all categories. Yeah. That's awesome. So why don't we talk about society and alcohol? Because Maybe with the exception of caffeine, it seems like alcohol is probably the most accepted drug in society, or at least top five. Um, well, definitely in America. Definitely. Certainly not in other countries. Sure, sure. There's yeah. some countries uh, that it it is illegal, uh, and I will not be visiting those countries. But, um, <laughs> you know, what 
kind of percentage of people in the United States drink alcohol? Do you guys have some demographics that kind of are offhand that you guys track? And, and how has that changed over the last couple decades? Yeah, yeah. So I, I think the statistic that I've seen is just around 50%, maybe a little less, of legal uh, adults drink regularly or have had it in, in about the last month. I, I think that that trend is actually decreasing sure. over time. But w- what I think is happening personally is, is, is it's not decreasing. I think it's it's balancing or stabilizing. I, I think more more broadly, the, the consumer landscape and the consumer mentality is shifting from this all or nothing mentality of I can have a lot of alcohol or sure, none sure. to, to, you know, I can have a drink at dinner. I can have a glass of wine. I can have, you know, something on a Wednesday or when I go out, I don't need to have 15 drinks. I can have one or two and then maybe shift to something that is non-alcoholic in nature, but has a lot of the flavor profiles of an alcoholic spirit. What would be an example of that? There's a company called Seedlip out there that I believe Diageo oh, yeah. recently acquired that does this very well. And I, I think that that's growing a lot. We also seen uh, kombucha sure. being used in the on-premise setting, right? You really? know, people having a kombucha. Yeah. Yeah. At a, at, at, at a bar out. Um, is that served like on tap or? You know, on tap and in the a, bottle. I imagine there's more more experience to that, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. There's on tap or in the bottle. There is a draft business to that, sure, sure. but you know, people are doing things like bitters and soda, right? yeah, which yeah. has never been done before, really. Sure. Um, and th- that's now becoming popular. What about where and, and how it's consumed? So you you mentioned that it's uh, no longer kind of a people don't completely abstain or they don't binge. Mm-hmm. Do they go to bars as frequently as they used to? Is there more at-home consumption? You know, I don't know about about the on-premise specifically. What I can tell you is that at-home consumption is definitely on the rise. I think I think with the rise of this craft cocktail culture, which is very very popular right now, and and the the fame of of mixologists, you know, bartenders and mixologists, sure. is people are getting excited to make this stuff at home, and it's the same story not only with spirits but home brewing is huge. Interesting, you know, home brewing is very big, and so I think that that's kind of percolating into a lot of other categories where people are, are saying, yeah, you know, I can I can buy all the ingredients and and make my cocktails at home and get really creative with it. That's now yeah. bigger than it's ever been. Is that a common origin story for? founders that you run into like oh i was making this at home i was micro brewing and then you know i started scaling up because everyone wanted it or is it people that really you know come with a business plan already kind of thought out yeah on the beer side definitely sure so a lot of brewers just started home brewing yeah, you know yeah, that's yeah. that's kind of the origin story of many of the Got famous yeah. famous you know, breweries that we know today sure um, it, it's little bit. It's a little bit less so on on the spirit side. I yeah, think yeah. that's kind of because it's a capital, a little more capital intensive process, a little bit higher scale to it. Got it. Um, but but I, I think definitely on the brewing side for sure, and probably on the spirit side. Sure, sure. Too. Cool. So that's a great way to talk about how alcohol is made. How is alcohol made? Oh boy. So I'm I'm not a scientist, <laughs> so I'm going to give you the the high level on how it's made. So essentially, you take. You take your base ingredient, whatever that is, whether it's a corn, a potato, a grain, a malt, um, a, a sugar cane, if you're making a rum, and you grind mm. it up into a meal, right? It's just mm. a coarse ground meal, and you add hot water to it, and you create what's called a mash. Mm. And that mash you then cook, 
And what it does is, and you're the you're the bio major, or you know more about this than I do. But I'm just a dropout. I'm here to learn. <laughs> uh, it converts the starch into sugar, and that's okay. what that piece of the process is intended to do: is convert the starch into sugar. So you take that next product, which is called a wort, and you begin to ferment that. So you add yeast to that liquid, and the byproduct of yeast eating sugar is alcohol. And so you allow that fermentation process to go on for however long you need it to, varies by whatever you're making. Are we talking like weeks or months? Or? Uh, for for uh, beer, yeah. weeks, and weeks. you know, for, for spirits, less so. Okay, got it. And so you allow that fermentation process to, to begin. And then whenever it's done, if you're creating a spirit, you add it to your copper still. Okay. And you begin to heat that at a very high temperature. And the first thing to vaporize is the alcohol. Okay. So the alcohol rises to the top. It goes out of the, you know, the the s- cylinder deal at the top, and it recondenses outside of the Got still. It. Okay. And you can do that a handful of times, right? To you know, triple distilled or whatever you hear people describe it as. And if it's vodka, you're pretty much done. Sure. And it, what comes out is a, a clear spirit. Okay. And then if you're making like a whiskey or a rum or a darker spirit, maybe even a tequila, sure. you're going to add that clear spirit to a barrel. And it's going to pick up the oh, color that's and the color flavor. Yes, exactly. So you're going to pick up the color and flavor in the aging process from the from the barrel. Okay, and that's it. going to sit for however long. And the longer it sits, the dark you know the darker it gets, and the more flavor it picks up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So David and I have always been joking. It seems like in vodka, there's a race to have the most number of distilled. Yeah, twenty so, times yeah. distilled. So yeah, why why hasn't anyone come out with like a just insane number? You know, just like twenty five times distilled. 50 times distilled. I mean, we hear about four and then we heard about five. Yeah. I think maybe there's a six or seven Just out there. Just cut to the chase. Well, I know. Yeah, that's a good point. I, I I would have to say it's probably because I'm sure there's the law of diminishing returns sure, sure. there, you know, or yeah. it's like, I just don't know how much more pure you can get. Yeah, yeah. It's probably a pretty decent marketing yeah, ploy, you know, thinking. to be able to to say that. I, yeah. I'm surprised someone hasn't. Cool. Yeah. Well, we have a pitch deck for you after the show. <laughs> okay. uh, hey, get out your checkbook. Yeah. And and so yeah, I mean, the process that you're described. I think a lot of people might have seen movies about people doing moonshining, and they have this shack yeah. in the woods, and yeah. it's dripping out oh, of yeah. the still, and that's. I presume because the steam condenses into this exactly. sort of drop, 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 and you just kind of wait for it to come out. On the science side of things, uh, sort of interesting to me, at least, interjection, which is that humans actually evolved, people believe now, to consume alcohol. Hmm. And a lot of the reason for that is because, as, as Joe described, alcohol is the product of sugar getting broken down by microbes. And what happened was primates are looking around for food and a lot of fruit falls off trees when it's rotten Mm -hmm. and it rots on the floor and the microbes are digesting it and so those fruits have a high percentage of alcohol in them they also have food available so there's a theory that the reason why we can why people have the alcohol dehydrogenase enzymes in such abundance is because we evolved from chimps and they were able to have an advantage where they could eat food that other chimps couldn't eat because they couldn't handle the alcohol or they thought it was disgusting or maybe it made them sick. Interesting. So you could have access to a food source that other people didn't have access to. That's that's interesting. Why I did not know the that. the drunken monkey theory. <laughs> <laughs> something else. I, I think it actually might be called really? something like that. Yeah, yeah sure. I, I wish I, wish I uh, remembered that. It's really interesting. And then also in, in the evolution of human society, alcohol has played 
a long and storied tradition. Uh, people think, you know, one of the reasons why alcohol could be such an abundant and commonly consumed drug throughout history is because it's so easy to produce because it naturally occurs. Sure, sure. And so people happened across it. Then they noticed, why did this happen? And they recreated the circumstances and soon uh, enterprising entrepreneurs figured out how to recreate the process and, and sell it to their fellow primitive man. Hmm. I did not know that. Yeah. Yeah. And then apparently also, uh, and then the, the nerd session is done for uh, a few minutes. Uh, <laughs> people used to consume alcoholic drinks that were lower in alcohol by volume than something we traditionally consume today because alcohol of course kills microbes. That's why people, uh, can use it. Rubbing alcohol is, is slightly different than the alcohol that you would drink. There's the meme that says mm. alcohol, uh, drinking alcohol for inside boo-boos and rubbing alcohol for outside boo-boos or something sure. like that. But <laughs> in societies where the water source was potentially unclean, having a slight alcoholic uh, addition would, oh. would potentially mm -hmm. uh, neutralize some of the microbes. That's interesting. I didn't know that either. <laughs> Well, yeah, wow. this is an educational yeah. podcast. Is that where you get like the monks brewing beer thing? Is that related to that? I, I think it potentially evolved from that, but I I think that the monks brewing beer is is slightly different. I okay. think it was just a an area of commerce that they were allowed to participate in. Interesting. It wasn't necessarily about cleanliness of water. Right. Got it. Interesting. So going back to the business side of things, how does one start an alcohol related business. You talked about brewers brewing at home, then they would figure, Hey, I've got a good recipe. I'd like to scale this up. Yeah. How, how does one go about starting a business like yeah. this? Well, that's the million dollar question. <laughs> so I, yeah, if there was a perfect recipe, I'd probably be doing that instead. <laughs> but, but I can, I can give you a, a couple things that we look for in, in an early stage brand that really help to differentiate it. I mean, the first, the first and foremost is the entrepreneur, it, him or herself, sure, sure. you know, they have to be dedicated, passionate about what they're doing, knowledgeable, driven, all the things that you would want an entrepreneur to check the box on yeah. that has to happen, sure. you know? And, and, and I think in a lot of ways, you know, it, it takes a lot of guts to go start a business. So you you need a specific type of person who's, and you guys know this, right? I mean, it takes a lot of guts to start a business. And so that's the first thing we look for is, is the right entrepreneur who's going to capable of leading this business sure. and is receptive to feedback, but is also willing to hustle and, and go learn the things that they may not know. The reality is you're never going to know everything, but do you have the drive to go learn yeah. about what you don't? So it's not an easy business to start. <laughs> no, still looking nothing, for those. yeah, nothing is. I don't think. But so we start with the entrepreneur, and then yeah. from there, I think I think the next thing is is the product itself, right? Sure. The the product has to taste good. You know, if we're talking about beverages, these are things things that are for the most part consumed every day, or many times a week, or even sometimes a week, but with some sort of regularity. And yeah, yeah. so the product has to taste good, and you've got to get that right. And now people take. Many di there are many different ways to do that. You can make it yourself, and this is the the home brewers we're talking about, or the you know we invested in a, in a whiskey brand called Laws Whiskey House. He is he is distilling everything on his own in Denver and has been for a long time, and oh. so he is extremely passionate about you know exudes that passion about about whiskey sure. and makes it himself and and you know, the product really resonates. It's a Got phenomenal it. product, but people co-pack as well and, and, you know, use yeah, somebody yeah. else, use a third party to make that, 
beverage, and those can be very good too. They so can when be you a, say Copac, you mean using a contract manufacturer, you're exactly. not actually making it yourself. Exactly. Yeah. So, so what type of business would kind of opt for that? Is that some, is that the type of business that's maybe thinking more about the branding and marketing side versus the product side or? Uh, yeah. You know, I, I think, I think both it, 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 listen, it's, it's a near, it's a good way to start things quickly. Sure. Right. Sure. So you don't have to, it's not capital intensive, yep, yep. like, you know, owning a distillery yeah, is, yeah. or, you know, storing inventory, all those things. So it's not capital intensive. You can get good quality out of it if you have the right partners in place and sure. you, you do know some of what you're doing there. Yeah, yeah. It's not, you know, it, it's a good option for some people. Yeah, that makes sense. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of people, it's widely used in the non-alcoholic beverage industry. I of think course, few yeah. people are doing it themselves. Yeah, and so, there. you know, I, I think you think that carries across spirits and, and alcohol as well. Sure. Um, is it difficult to translate your smaller business, smaller manufacturing capacity, and then shift to a co-packer? You know, what, what typically happens actually, what I've seen, it, it is, it's difficult to make a shift in any supply chain ever. I mean, sure. that's just, a, you know, if you're shifting from a production model to a co-packing model or vice versa, it's always difficult. It seems like I, it has to be particularly difficult in alcohol when small batch is yes. such a tagline. And, yes. that, and that actually holds a lot of kind of value to the consumer when you say, hey, yeah, we've been doing it small batch, but we're, we just raised a bunch of money. We're going to go do a big batch with some co-packer. I think a lot of people could be worried about the quality slipping. And even Definitely. if they don't, you're still, you're still moving, you're still losing that kind of magical, you know, little family yeah, brand. Founder touch. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Well, you might just be making a lot more small batches. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think that's a good pitch for manufacturers to make. Whoa, really whoa. what we do here is just a lot of small batches in one big machine that runs all at the same time. Uh, what, what we actually see is a lot of people shifting from co-packing initially to get, get them off the ground. And yeah, then, and then eventually, you know, gaining some, gaining the ability to raise some capital and then mm -hmm. investing in their, in their project on got their it, own. So it. that's actually a model I've seen a little bit more sure, often, sure. but that kind of bring your, you know, your comment, I think brings me to the next point of what makes, what makes a good brand, yeah, right? Yeah. Which is the brand. Sure. You know, the brand has to say everything. It has, it has to speak to the consumer in a way that, you know, no other brand out there is. I, I think, and again, Spirits is unique in this way. You know, craft beer had a real moment where it was somewhat easy for a craft brewer to say, this is made with high quality, when yeah. the juxtaposition against that was something like a Bud Light or a Coors Light, which have historically been villainized products, you yeah, know, yeah. perceived as lower quality. And in Spirits, you don't necessarily have that problem. You're yeah. going to have a tough time convincing me yeah. that something like Jack Daniel's single barrel sure. isn't a good product yeah, or yeah, yeah. a bullet rye isn't a good product. Those are good products. And they've and invested they, a ton in the brand. They've, when you they've look invested at the, in the brand. They've the invested in, yeah, and these, they're, they're seen as premium. And it's a 12 year age product. I mean, yeah. how could it not be? You know, yeah, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's it, there, those are high, very high quality products. Sure, so sure. that perception issue isn't there as much with the larger brands and spirits. And yeah, so yeah. spirits brands have to find a different way yeah. to speak to the consumer. So at least on the whiskey side, what a lot of people have done or the proliferation of that market's really been around a little bit more of a geographic breakdown. So understanding not all whiskey needs to come from Kentucky. In the case of laws, there's that's a whiskey that is grown, you know, is made with heirloom grains grown in in the Colorado region Got it. and is distilled with water, you know, Colorado water sure, and, sure. and you know, high elevation aging and all those things. Yeah. And it creates a different profile than something like a Kentucky whiskey, which is different than something like a Pacific Northwest whiskey. 
Yeah. And, and what is bourbon in the frame of all of this? Is it, that a Kentucky whiskey or is that something? It's not. It has to do with the ingredient base. Okay. So, yeah. So Laws makes a, a, a four grain bourbon is what they call it mm. as okay. well. That's awesome. Yeah. So, you know, brand is is so critical and, and finding new ways and different ways to to touch the consumer in a way that nobody else is, yeah, yeah. is I, I wish I had for you the right way to do that. Yeah. But you, it's one of these things, you know, where you see it and sure. then the, the, the consumer reacts to that. And yeah, so yeah. if you transition your co-packing, you better make sure that the brand, the brand trans- continues solid. to translate. Yeah. Yeah. That you know? makes sense. So you touched on a few issues there that we could dive into. One yeah. of them is inventory management. If yeah. you have to age something for years, how do you know how much to make? And what if you didn't make enough? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a problem. It's a, it's a challenge for sure. And, you know, that's one of the big barriers to entry, which is why, uh, you know, a lot of whiskey out there is, is uh, sourced initially, sourced and blended. But, you know, it, it's, a, it's a huge barrier to entry. Think about it from a, um, from a capital investment perspective. So you're going to, you, you're really confident in your ability to make whiskey. You're going to spend... I don't know, a lot of money, maybe a million dollars, maybe a couple million dollars to put all of this liquid into these barrels. And then you're going to close your eyes. And in one year, you're going to check it. And in two years, you're going to check it. And maybe in three, it's good to go. Maybe it's not. You know, that's a long time to just kind of close your eyes and bet bet on yourself. And so it's it's amazing what a lot of these these distillers have done. But, you know, it's it's a challenge with with the the whiskey industry is is having the right you know, having the right inventory on hand and being able to to really project that and, and understand that. And there's there's no secret sauce or magic to it. You've just got to have a feel for how the consumer and the consumption is going to make its way. Yeah. Do you ever hear forward. about startups that are working on something that's not going to debut for 12 years? You're like, oh, I'm looking forward to seeing how that turns out. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> is like the magic leap of, or like the augmented reality glasses of, you know, I, or something? I haven't, I haven't, there's probably a couple out there. Yeah. I, I haven't come across one yet, but you know, that's, it's the case of laws. I sure, mean, that's sure. why we were so impressed. I mean, he, yeah, he, he, he's, he's invested that time. He's right? in a, you yeah. know, he, he really is. If you met him, he's a student of whiskey. Sure, he really sure. is. He, he knows everything there is to know about every one of the whiskeys out there. Got and he's it, passionate about yeah. all of them not yeah, just yeah. his and so when he when his product came out it it tasted phenomenal Got it. you know and so there was a little bit of de-risking there with the fact that he's you know he he knew so much about what he was doing but you know for a lot of ways reasons he, he was self-taught in a lot of ways you yeah. know and so that was a big bet on on his part a bet on himself so talking about blends for a second because yeah. you you alluded to that that's something that is common in uh, a lot of the alcohol businesses. And there's something to do with being able to make a claim that a whiskey is a certain age, potentially, if some percentage of it yeah. comes from... Can you describe that to us? Yeah. So I don't know the complete legal framework around that sure. or the regulator- regulatory framework around that. What I would say is that there are some distilleries that so jack daniels right every single bottle from jack daniels is an example tastes exactly the same sure i've now, noticed that yeah <laughs> and Good job, guys. if you were to- <laughs> in, in, and i've done extensive studies yeah, I'll, I'll give the uh, office address after yeah. the podcast yeah. it, and if you were to have five different bottles of single barrel jack they would all taste different 
And so okay. there's a there's a consistency that they need to achieve, just using them as a, as a high-level sure, sure. example, right? There's a consistency that they need to achieve to get to the right flavor profile that says, this is Jack Daniels, sure. you know, this is number nine, right? And so that blending process could be, it could be a, a very old whiskey, a six-year whiskey and a two-year whiskey, and you just blend it out to the right, to the right, flavor to achieve it's all about the flavor profile you're trying to achieve right this all comes back to taste right and how does it taste and so i don't know a lot of people doing just single barrel and that's all they do so it's a common practice in the industry and as far as aging is concerned i don't know the, the regulatory framework around that gotcha and and also in other alcoholic beverages like wine red blends are becoming more oh, yeah. in vogue i i don't really know why i, I assume because it's a way to optimize the flavor profile and purists were kind of turning up their nose at it for a long time. And then it seems like people are saying, well, if taste really is king, why don't we just optimize for the best flavor profile and we can source grapes from different places? Is that kind of how you think about it? Yeah, or? right. That's like, I, I believe Oren Swift does that, right? So they're all red blends and, and, you know, I, I'm a big prisoner wine drinker. I love, I love that, that wine. And the reality is, is I know that every time I pick up a prisoner, I know exactly what it's going to taste like. There's no, he takes the year out of it, out of the equation, right? Which right. is really, really interesting. You know, uh, with, with all these trends and, you know, trends more broadly, right? Trends are a point in time identification of a constantly evolving, incredibly dynamic, lots of variables, movement of demographics and social media and all these things going on. And so you're trying to, to put a point on what's, what's happening right now. Sure. And so, you know, from our perspective, we're trying to look at what's happening, what's going to happen yeah, in, yeah. in, you know, five years from now. Right. And so there's all these, there's all these factors that come into play, but you know, the, this stuff is, is somewhat circular in nature, right? I think what's sure, the, sure. what's the Mark Twain, I think, quote, you know, history never repeats it, itself, but it often rhymes, mm. right? That's what, yeah, yeah. that's what happens here. So, you know, Zins were, were very popular for a while sure, there sure. in the wine industry and, and now it's Rosé, got it, right? Which is just a little, just, it's not yeah, that yeah. different from, from, you know, the, I mean, a wine purist would probably tell me otherwise, yeah, yeah, but, but but you know they're not that different, right? Sure. So the flavor profiles are changing slightly, but they're just shifting. They're not really wholesale changes to things. So I think red blends are just trying to achieve that optimal taste profile and ability to guarantee that every single time you pick up that bottle. Sure. And if we're going to take a step backwards for a second and talk about the entrepreneurial case, how does one, let's say, let's just make an example. I'm yeah. a home brewer and I think I've got the the bees knees which could be a decent brand name i'm gonna go where do i sell bees knees i go to a grocery store that's local and say we stock this or would i go to a beer festival and try to win some sort of award yeah or would i go to some local bars what what do you see happen most frequently and, and most successfully yeah so the system that's been set up since the start of prohibition and still exists today or at the end of prohibition excuse me and still <laughs> still exists today is the is the three tier system right so all products all alcohol products have to go through a distributor who's sure. wholly independent from the supplier the Got brand it who is wholly independent from the retailer, Got right? It. So three tiers okay. and you can't cross over tiers. So you okay. can't be a retailer and a supplier, Got right? It. That doesn't work. And so it's gotta go through the distributor. So your, your first angle is to distribute. You can self-distribute, but you need to get a license to do that and be a self-distributor you know, self of your own product. And at that point, once you are, 
you're selling your product into accounts, right? And, and you and the wholesaler, let's say you sign up Southern Glazers, right, which is a large you know, national distributor, that you are going to work with them, your sales team and your, your people on the ground. You know, this is one of the few industries that's still very much a hand-to-hand combat sure, business, sure. right? So your people on the ground are going to sell in the product alongside the distributor reps who are also going to try and sell in your product and attain, attain accounts, right? And so, you know, the strategy that I've seen work a lot that we really try and reinforce with a lot of the brands we talk to, not just the brands in our portfolio, but really my piece of advice to to anybody I talk to is you absolutely need to focus. You need to focus your efforts on one geographic area and really just try and own that area, right? Try and get as much distribution as you can, as much velocity throughput as you can so that people are reordering it over and over again and focus on building that product. I think the statistic that that we quote often is, I think it's it's let me see, it's seventy five percent cheaper to retain an existing customer than it is to go acquire a new one. Yeah. Right. So it's it's much easier for you. And this happened in the beer industry, right? So in the beer industry, when things were booming, all the distributors across the nation said, "I want to bring you in. You're a great, you know, craft beer is going, you know, going off the hook, and we want you." in our distributorship and we're going to sell you and you don't need to commit that many resources because at the time it was easy because the retailers wanted them too. And then there came a point where there were so many brands in the market that the consumer really wanted local. And now you had all these California brands stuck in Michigan Mm. who are saying, God, it's really hard to continue to sell my product and continue to grow in Michigan without putting more people behind it. And more people means more money and more capital. So the the thing that we try and reinforce is sustainable growth, right? Got it. Focus on sustainable growth. And if that's one market or two markets, make sure you can sustain those before pushing out to, to many more. Sure, sure. And and so when you talk about distributing, a distributor can distribute to bars or grocery stores or liquor stores, or do they specialize in a particular thing? And also how come I can go to a brewery and it seems like they make their beer and I can buy it there? Yeah and they can sell it in stores. So how does that all work? Yeah, so there there are laws, and so it's important to know that every state is completely different. There are states, there are counties in the United States that are still dry counties, still, okay. yeah. yeah. So every, every state, every county is completely different sure. in terms of regulatory framework. But what you're referring to is that there are tasting rooms, and in specific states, you're allowed to sell beer over the bar and allow people to take home a six-pack or a 12-pack or whatever. It really depends by state is the answer. What's the rationale for that law? What, what law? The three-tiers law. Well, initially, I think it was to put a governor on, and you know, you'd have to really ask the people back in, back in 1933. Can, yeah. But I think it was to put a governor on the ability to get your product in people's hands and, and influence the consumer. I think that was a big piece of it was influence, right? This wasn't the day of social media, right, where you can reach people and information's readily available. So I think there's an influence piece here. It's probably a monopoly piece to it as well. You know, they didn't want companies to come in and monopolize the, the industry. The yeah, yeah, exactly, which creates a, a whole litany of problems. So um, I, I, th- I think that's why. Got it. So it's a state-by-state basis. It's yes. not a beer versus liquor distinction or, or hard liquor versus... It's both. Okay. It's both, yeah. So hard liquor and wine are governed totally separately from beer, mm-hmm. and there are different laws around each by state. Wow. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, well, related to that, I'd love to talk about kind of online distribution because that's a big part of where our background is. But yeah. yet it doesn't feel like there's been a breakout brand online in alcohol whatsoever. Yeah. Is that related to the three-tier law or is that related to restrictions on age verification? Um, what's your What's your opinion? Have you ever been pitched a company that says, you know, hey, we're going to sell this online. That's going to be our thing. We haven't been pitched that in the spirit side yet. You know, DTC wine yeah. is very popular, sure, right? Sure. There's all these wine clubs out there. Yeah. Drinks.com is one. Yeah. Do they uh, make their Wink. own wine? Uh, they will co-pack or sure. so source their product and okay. put a label on it. So they'll Got private it. label their own product. Sure, sure. And so it's big in the wine industry. I haven't seen it as much in the yeah. spirit side. That That's an interesting opportunity. I, I think... E-commerce is very early on for, sure. for the spirits industry because of like the three-tier system and, and because of of how that has developed over time. I, I think it. there's a lot of question marks around how to get – are you getting around it? Yeah, yeah. Are you in it? You yeah, know, yeah, yeah. you know, and and that too has been handled by state. Yeah, yeah. It's been handled by state, which is, you know, is it the best way to handle it? I, I'm not really sure, but but that's how that has developed. We were actually, or, you know, we were in, in, invested in, in a business called Drizzly, oh, yeah. which is a direct to consumer alcohol delivery service. And their way around, you know, to work within the three tier system yeah. was to essentially connect you to retailers. Okay. So they were signing on retailers yeah. who put their pro who put their products online, which yeah, are yeah. the same brands that we all know, Grey Goose, you sure, know, sure. All, you know, Jack Daniels, all of them. And then you had the ability to order on there, yeah. and the retailer was the one who is going to deliver to you your product. Yeah, yeah. And so Drizzly was just kind of a middleman, yeah, allowed like they're, you. They're not anywhere in the three tiers at that point. They're, they're, they're allowing the system to yeah. work in e-commerce. Yeah, they're almost like a marketing arm for the retailer. Yeah, in, in a lot of ways. That's yeah. interesting. I've never had it, heard it put that way. But yeah, but what it's done is it's yeah. it's the first step in unlocking e-commerce yeah, yeah, for the spirits they're industry. Not, yeah, they're not making it. They're not distributing it yeah. from, the, from the manufacturer to the retailer. They're actually taking it from the retailer to the customer. So they're yeah. like an extra layer there. Yeah, it's exactly. Like that's exactly right. Almost. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sure they have to comply with all the laws and yeah, everything. But yeah, and it's all it's all by it's all handled by state, so it's totally different. There are wine, you know, DTC wine companies that you you can't ship out of state in certain states, or you can only get you know if you go to Silver Oak in in Napa, you sure, can only sure. get Silver Oak to certain states. If you know if you're not in those states, you can't you can't get the delivery. Wow. Yeah, I mean, it seems like one of the, aside from the e-commerce evolution and being able to age verify more effectively now, it's expensive to ship all of the water along with that alcohol. It's very heavy. Yeah. John and I found this at Soylent when we were shipping yeah. ready-to-drink uh, meals that it increases the shipping cost. But with alcohol, you can charge so much money per bottle because it's this exquisite experience and so i wonder if we're going to see more of that happen in, in hard alcohol with the wine clubs you usually have some sort of minimum number of bottles that you yeah. have to purchase for them to bother shipping it to you right i don't know of of too many places where you can order and just one-off one bottle off, of wine yeah. huh interesting yeah that's uh well if anybody out there wants to uh <laughs> start a direct-to-consumer whiskey company maybe now's the time <laughs> so Still, it sounds like you have to make a deal with a distributor at some point if you are going to be an alcohol brand. Of scale, yes. Of scale. And there aren't a lot of them. And 
right? There's 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 not too many major ones. Or? That's correct. Yeah, there's been a there's been an incredible consolidation in, in the in the uh, spirits distribution and wine distribution industry. So Southern Glazers, I believe they they distribute to well over forty states, and and R and D C is another business similar to that. What has popped up around that is smaller distributors who have a little bit more limited access to different accounts, but it, it's just a, it's just it depends on what kind of strategy you would like to take. Do you want do you want to go wide fast? If you do, you better have the capital to support growth like that. It, right, going back to how many people you need in each market. Right, if you want to go wide fast with someone like a Southern, you better be able to support them. You better be able to get the attention sure. that their sales reps need to really care about you. Right, their sales reps are saying, okay, why would I sell X instead of you know the couple thousand dollars I'm going to make on Jack Daniels? Right, selling selling that. So you, it, it's a focus issue, and you need to be able to gain their focus and you do that through you know people to people interaction or performance okay so bees knees is now branching out into <laughs> bourbon and we go to one of the major distributors i'd be conflicted out <laughs> okay. well yeah, okay I, but hypothetically then i go to a major distributor you're a major distributor and i say hey i've raised a million and a half dollars from family and friends i've got this great product everybody in my hometown loves it i have this letter of intent or this contract that's about to close with a co-packer who can scale pretty well. Yep. Your concerns are, are what it's that I can produce enough product for you to sell Yep. that I have enough money to invest into marketing my own product so that if you're bothering to carry it to different stores that people want to buy it Yep. and then incentivizing the sales force do I say for every bottle you sell, I'm going to pay your salesperson five bucks or, or what, what are the other major, what, why, why do you say that you need so much capital to scale the business, to make a deal with one of these distributors? Yeah. So it's important to break, break apart sales and distribution. And a lot of distributors do both, but they're two very different functions, right? So they're one piece of it is they're going to get your product to where it's supposed to go when it's supposed to go. And that's a piece of the business. The other piece of the business is incentivizing salespeople. So you should have in the market your own people that are going and getting new accounts, whether that's on-premise bars, you know, really cool, you know, Soho House and, and you know, Little Beach House and all the cool sure. places, Ace Hotel yeah. and all those places and, and off-premise as well. So, you know, BevMo, Total Wine, et cetera. You should be going and getting those. Your, their salespeople are also making, you know, the distributor salespeople are also making the rounds and hitting different accounts and, and they're doing different things. And usually at the beginning of the year, as part of the budgeting process for them with you, they're going to sit down and they're going to commit to, here's how many cases we think you, we can do with our support and with your support. And those people, those salespeople are, are also going to try and sell your product in. Now, the problem is, is they're selling a lot of products. They're not just selling your product. And in the case of a larger distributor, they're selling quite a bit of product, you know? And so it's about, again, focus within the distributor. And there's a bunch of different ways to go get that focus, right? Whether it's incentivizing the sales team by, you know, different sales goals or, or however you do that, whether it's your own performance, right? You show up, your salespeople show up and they've got 150 new accounts every month for the last five months. Yep. You know, that's really impressive and that's going to get some attention from people. You get them fired up. You know, again, this is this is not just a, a data business. This is still sure, one sure. of the last remaining hand-to-hand -hand combat businesses. It really is a people business. And so it's, it's about incentivizing 
that team and your team to go achieve a common goal. Got it. And so if you're putting together your own sales team, do they, you, you mentioned bars, you also mentioned accounts for grocery stores or, or large places where you can buy product like BevMo. Yep. Do they specialize, do salespeople specialize in different uh, types of accounts because they have pre-existing relationships? How many salespeople do I need to hire if I need to blanket California effectively? How, what's the geographic area of these people? Yeah. What's, what's a cost effective, but still sufficient to win kind yeah. of expenditure if we're talking, let's just say California. Yeah. You know, it, it, I hate to say it, it varies, but it varies. But I, I would say a common rule of thumb is maybe, maybe five people focused on sales in the LA market initially, just, you LA. know, just, just to really, I wow. mean, you, you could get away with less. You really, yeah. you really could, but to really make a, a big dent in the market with all the competition that's going on, I would want four or five people to really feel comfortable. Maybe a little, maybe you could probably get away with two or three, but you know, the, the more, the better. And how many places do they visit in a day? Oh boy. I don't, I don't know that answer. Um, a lot, a lot. lot. A lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A now, lot. So and I assume they're Ubering if they have to demo the product and, and drink it at each location. <laughs> I, yeah, yeah. So I was never a salesperson, so I don't have a first first person perspective here. But I, I think that they get pretty good at if they are demoing it, or if they are, you know, let's say they're they're just getting to know the manager at, at a cool bar, yeah. right? They're going to sit down, they're going to buy him a drink, sure, they're gonna, sure. and they're going to sh- sit down and they're going to buy other guests drinks and just kind of show the manager how invested they are in winning this account and yeah, yeah. and you know it's all optics right and so they're going to buy a couple people drinks they're maybe going to have a drink or two themselves they're going to maybe swish it around in their mouth and put it you know i yeah you know, they're yeah. going to find ways to ways to get around that i yeah. met a liquor salesman in my early 20s at a group dinner uh-huh. so many years ago and at the time just graduating from college i you know he was he was in his early 20s as well i said man i think you might have the best job ever <laughs> and because he's got it he's, his job is to go around to all these places and demo the product and it does involve some drinking and you know he said well you know you you do get tired of it i'm sure that's yeah, your I'm day sure. day. and i said yeah you're absolutely right now that i think about it that actually sounds terrible mm-hmm. i swung to the opposite end of the pendulum and i said well do you have any survival strategies and yeah he said kind of like what you said, the, yeah. the swishing around in the mouth. He, he basically said there were a few things that he did religiously. One was he always accepted a new drink, yep. but he never finished the previous one. Yep. He said that people would not remember if he put it down, how much he had consumed, only that he refused the drink in the first place. Huh. So he would constantly be accepting new drinks, but not finishing them. And then he also had to commit to a very, very rigorous exercise routine every morning, oh, I'm sure. I think to flush the system from, because alcohol is uh, a carcinogen, fun fact. And apparently the, the research is coming out that there's kind of a division, I, I think if I'm up to date between the cardiologists and the cancer people, hmm. the cancer folks think that there is no safe amount of alcohol and it seems to cause cancer in the areas that it touches most frequently, mouth, esophageal, et cetera. Hmm. And then there are the heart people saying, well, a few drinks moderately does seem to help. Some of that mm-hmm. could be biological. Some of that could be, it fosters community and loneliness is, is far more harmful than uh, being part of a community. Glass of wine at night, right? It's right. supposed to be yeah, good. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. But you know, w- we on the show are, are pretty understanding about the pros and cons uh, about different substances and alcohol has obviously been part of society for a long time. And so I think 
much to your point that people are no longer binging and, and seeming to consume alcohol more responsibly. I think that's, that's certainly beneficial. I have an interesting question about this. Um, are there any companies that you've looked at where, and I mean, you don't have to name names, but where you've been like, th- like investing in this type of business might be unethical. Like I'm thinking mm-hmm. about companies that maybe bend the rules around what else they put in it, like mm-hmm. caffeine and alcohol mixed together or trying to sell something that just has so much alcohol in it, but is maybe so flavored that you don't really understand how much you're consuming. Yeah. Is that, is that an issue or is it, or is it kind of like, you know, because of the distribution model, these things are very gated and people kind of understand what they're get, what they're going into that that really doesn't come across that much. We definitely looked at products like that. Sure. I think there's a lot of products like that out yeah. there. We've never made an investment. Sure. Um, you know, I, I think there's there's some real success stories around yeah. that strategy. Uh, I, I don't know, yeah. I don't know that it's that it's that it's. We haven't found one that's a fit today sure, for sure. us. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, but what what I would say, I'm, I mean, I, I think I think your point's really interesting around, you know, this this healthier lifestyle, balanced drinking. I, I think what's kind of come out of that. Like we are right yeah. now. <laughs> what's kind of come out of that is this this idea of of healthy beer has actually come out as well. Oh, so so Michelob Ultra, right? They're positioning it around, go have a workout, and then after your workout, come drink a Michelob Ultra. And it's one of the fastest growing beers out there. And another brand like that is Sufferfest. Sufferfest Brewing Company, which was just acquired by Sierra Nevada. We made the introduction. Oh. And, uh, they're doing the exact same thing, positioning it as a post-cycle, you know, a bike ride, you know, it's it's okay to have a beer. This is a lower calorie beer. It's good, for, you know. It's good to have. It's it's okay. So it's healthy, relatively speaking. Yes. Or okay. I yes. Well, relatively the, speaking. Yeah, and, and my understanding too is a, a shandy was uh, the OG healthy beer, right? Because it's it's like a lemonade yeah. kind of thing. Yeah, I don't um, know when shandies came. Like a ram. Yeah, shandy, a rambler. Rattler. You know, yeah, or, or not a rambler. A Rattler. Yeah, yeah, Rattlers, yeah. Delicious. Yeah, exactly. So I don't know when those came about, but that's really interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Huh. And, and then also, actually, to your German uh, or Belgian monk point earlier, sure. a lot of people think uh, that the reason why Belgian beers are so thick and uh, filling is because apparently the monks, when they were doing religious fasts, were still allowed to consume beer. And so wow. I th- people, some people believe, I, people can fact check me on this, but I'm pretty sure that monks were allowed to drink beer during their fast. And so they kind of conspired and said, well you know, we're pretty hungry from fasting all day. We're allowed to do this beer. So just have, have the thick beer and, and everybody's huh. kind of sated. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. Well, so if we can just have a healthy sating beer, we could have the Soylent of beers, Yeah, <laughs> which live on uh, it entirely. I think that's Guinness, right? Well, there was There's a guy that lived yeah. on Belgian beer oh, entirely. Yeah, Belgian beers. Remember wow. that? I, yeah, that's insane. <laughs> I mean, I think it was for a very short period of time, yeah. and I don't think you could sustain a lifestyle doing that. Yeah. There, so there's th- something about Guinness in Ireland that yeah. is just so amazing. There was also that guy who tried to run an, a marathon where he'd drink a beer every mile. Oh, wow. And he was doing, like, the best time <laughs> for the first, like, 16 miles, and I think he hit a complete wall. Yeah, I don't know if just, I've like, got that collapsed. in me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's certainly an interesting uh, physical experiment. <laughs> Well, yeah. I mean, plenty of people have run regular marathons. People are always trying to push the envelope. I mean, there's people that run, yeah. what, what are the ultra marathons? It's like five times or 10 times as long. I think it's a so. hundred miles to be an ultra marathon yes. runner. Yeah. So if you can do five times as much, maybe you can do one fifth as much as you can do drunk. Yeah. 
Well, there, there were, I mean, in, in German culture, there's all these kinds of beer drinking traditions there. I mean, the home of Oktoberfest, I think uh-huh. they had these, there was this race, I think they used to do called a, it's not a Steinlager, I feel like that's the name of the beer, yeah. okay. but there's some premise where you, you go on a race with a partner and you're supposed to drink a bunch of beers. Sure. Alcohol has been incorporated, obviously, into human culture in, in, in a lot of ways, but yeah. to, to refocus, I guess, so let's say that we've hired the sales team mm-hmm. and we've brokered a deal with the distributor. Mm-hmm. What, what do we do on the marketing side to enable our salespeople to be successful? Yeah. Again, this is definitely the million dollar question. What, what I would say is a, a lot of brands are trying to engage in, in you know, digital marketing, which I think is, is incredibly important. I, I do think it's getting a little bit crowded. Uh, and so I, I think that brands need to also find new and differentiated ways to reach their consumer. A, lo- a lot of people are doing that through experiential, sure. right? So doing things like a tasting room is a great way to do that, right? To have somebody come into your home, interact with your brand in, in a real, real way, touch it, feel it, see the distributor, the distiller, meet the distiller, yeah. watch it yeah. ferment. You know, a lot of these things are open air fermentation, right? So watch it ferment sure. and then go buy some, yeah. right? And then that's your first touch of the brand. So a lot of people have tried, uh, ex- you know, experiential marketing, Digital marketing definitely needs to be a part of it. There's there's no more efficient way to reach the vast amount of consumers you can on the digital side than dig, you know than digital, and and in terms of messaging, it's 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 got to resonate with with the with the consumer. You know, I think millennials today, everyone likes to use millennials as the buzzword, but really consumers today across the board, they want to understand more about the brand. They're looking for more out of the brand than just, this is a tasty beverage and that's it. They want to hear about the backstory. They want to hear about a purpose. They want to know why you're doing the things you're doing. And all of those things matter today. So that has to come across in a way that's unique and differentiated. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. I was, I'm personally, I would just hire George Clooney because that <laughs> seems to work out historically, right? <laughs> well, even even Casamigos, right? He was a piece of the story. He wasn't all of it. And the way that they rolled that out and how they did, it was a little bit of that was right right product at right time. It was a fantastic, it's a fantastic product. It really is. It's a good tequila in my mind. And so, you know, they, they were able to effectively use him without making him the center of the story. You know, mm-hmm. he's always on the motorcycle with two other people sure, or one sure. other, I think it was with Randy Gerber, right? Yeah, yeah, and there yeah. was the two of them and everyone knows the story. They, you know, they drank it together at their yeah, club yeah. in Mexico, right? So even that, you know, the story behind the product and, and you can articulate that. I think a lot of people do know that story. And so when you combine high quality product, right place, right time, good price point, and, you know, the right way to use a celebrity, then, you know, it made for quite a successful outcome. Sure. And, and speaking of successful outcomes, can we think about some other examples, maybe ones that don't use uh, a celebrity? Because I feel like we see a lot of those and a lot of those are successful. But yeah. let's say we don't have any celebrity friends. Uh, unfortunately, <laughs> I, I don't. Uh, I do not either. Yeah. Some of some of my friends might I think consider themselves celebrities. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah, let's see. There you go. Um, bullet bourbon yeah. seemed to have done well, had a kind of a breakaway move. Would, would you agree? It seems like they had a really cool, seems like a packaging thing that, that really worked well for them. I don't know. Is yeah. that a good example? Or? Yeah. Bullet bull, bull is strategically owned. It's a rye, it's a rye whiskey. Okay. Bullet rye. What I, what I would say is that the strategic landscape for acquisitions is kind of all over the board right now. So you've got 
Casamigos on one end, right? The big headline billion dollar deal. Mm -hmm. And then on the the other end, you have a lot of smaller brands being acquired. So I I think it really depends on, and and this is where a group like First Beverage does come into play, is it really depends by strategic. You know, they all have their own strategies. They all have their own needs. They all look at their portfolio a little bit different. And so you really need to understand how does that product fit within that portfolio, right? You could have a, a business that doesn't invest in clear spirits, yeah. right? And then, well, okay, well, then they're probably not going to acquire a vodka, regardless of what size it is, right? Or you could have, a, you know, a, a business that is trying to, you know, fill out a geographic whiskey portfolio, right? So one of the, you know, one of the strategics may want to own five different whiskeys and kind of segment them, you know, have their Colorado whiskey, have a California Southwest whiskey, have a Pacific Northwest whiskey, you know, do something like that. I don't know if they are, but that could be a way. So everyone has their own unique take on the market and how they're trying to do things. And so it's just a matter of where the product fits into the portfolio. Diageo decided to make a pretty big bet on a, on a big business, right? That was a, a I think it was over 100,000 cases, right? So it's a big business that that they bought, and they're going to be able to roll that out, and they're and they're doing that. And that's very different from somebody who buys a 5,000 case, you know, brand. Can we talk about Diageo? Is an enormous global company, right? Yes. Yeah. So Casamigos was obviously started as an American mm-hmm. kind of brand, or uh, in some ways because the founders were American. How did the alcohol tastes change when you look and you zoom out and look at the entire world? Yeah, they're dr- they're dramatically different, and and I think that those lines are starting to blur. So if you look over to Europe, American whiskey is huge in Europe. That was a a big deal when you're talking about you know when you, the U.S. is talking about things like tariffs and, and and trade wars and things like that. The whiskey industry is going, oh my gosh, you know, uh oh because there's a lot of exporting going on with whiskey into Europe and I believe into Asia as well. And so I, this is a, a global economy now. And, and I, I think I think there's a lot of different products still out there that haven't come into the US market. So products that are native to South America that, you know, like a, like a Pisco, right? Which is a, a South American- I love Pisco. Yeah, right? It's not that big in the, in the US or you look at something like, like a shochu right, over in Asia, right? That's not something that's really made its way into the U.S. So there are very different taste profiles around the world and it varies by geography. But I I think that those will start to blur over time as as all things do. Cool, cool. Uh, So talking about other drugs of interest for a second, we were talking off air for a few minutes about CBD, THC. You hear a lot of people saying, THC or, or cannabis in general is going to take a lot of market share away from alcohol. How do you guys feel about that? You know, the answer is we just don't know right now. We just don't know. Can, can you say it's not going to take away any market share? No, I don't think you can credibly say that it's yeah. going to take away no market share. There's a, there's a usage occasion for cannabis and there's a usage occasion for alcohol, a cocktail or a beer or whatever. And sometimes those overlap and sometimes those don't. And that varies by demographic, by consumer, by lifestyle, by age group. It varies by all those things. So you can't say that it's not gonna take away any market share. Just how much? I don't know. I don't think too much. I think there's a balance in there. I think some people want to have, you know, a a marijuana product every once in a while and, and sometimes they don't. 
you know, so I think there's a balancing. I, I just can't tell you how much. Well, you much. guys must be looking at market research to try to predict to the best you can. I mean, are a lot of people predicted to use both or use them as substitutes? Or is there any preliminary data that, that you might be able to speak to? Yeah, I, I think I think I th there is. I'm not remembering off the top of my head. I think I would imagine that they look a lot like substitutes. I think it varies by wine, spirit, and beer. And I think some of them look like substitutes more than others. So I think that beer, to me, looks like a substitute and maybe wine less so. Although if you're talking about a usage occasion where you're at home on a Thursday night, maybe it doesn't. I think spirits has the least overlap, would be my guess, in terms of substitution. But I, I'd have to look into that well, a little I mean, further. Although, obviously, cannabis is growing. Like, it is on the market, and people are buying it yes. currently. I mean, it, it, it's growing, but you certainly haven't seen like the overall alcohol market shrink in the last few years as we've seen cannabis become more and more legal yet. Right? Yeah. It's not so going this is away. Something, exactly. Yeah. This is something that, you know, it might be imperceptible in the data for a long time. Yeah. It's quite I, possible. I, and, and there's so much that's still illegally tracked, right? So you can only sure. track legal sales as well. So I think there's some development that has to go on to really understand how the market's going to develop. I think there is some substitution for sure. There's some, addition as well. So just incremental consumption, maybe it's probably more of a, a weekday thing and, and maybe it is a weekend thing as well, but it's probably a little bit of both in terms of mixing something like THC in a beer or THC in a cocktail. I have a really, really tough time with that. I, I why? well, because, you know, I, I think that there's some science that need, I would want to hear a little bit of science maybe around you've onset. Sure. So you get, you get, yeah. well, actually, yeah, that could be potentially the worst of both worlds because you start getting drunk. The THC hasn't hit you. You make the classic cannabis edible mistake where you think <laughs> it's not working. So you have more and then you're really drunk and extremely intoxicated from the effects of THC. Yeah. I see. I, I just think that there's some science that I would <laughs> like to see around whether or not that's okay yeah. before I jumped into something like that. Sure. Sure. Well, someone's going to crack it because yeah. humans are uh, pretty ingenious, especially when it comes to this kind of topic. Experimental by nature. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, I, I think uh, we've wrapped up the majority of our, our questions and uh, everybody, if, if, if anyone is listening, anyone at all, you can submit some questions to us. We'll put the email down below and we'll uh, have a follow-up discussion in the future. And hopefully if, if Joe is willing to join us again. Sounds good. Okay. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, guys. Yeah, we really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thanks, everybody, for joining us today on another episode of How to Sell Drugs, presented by Lucy.co. We're a podcast about drug culture, policy, and business with an emphasis on harm reduction. We hope that you learned something today, or at the very least, were entertained. And we'll be back very soon with our next episode. Thank you. <laughs>